Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest, and I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Hi, I'm Mina Kim. And I'm Alexis Madrigal. And you've found Forum in Focus, a show where we bring you the week's most compelling conversations recorded live on our radio show Forum on KQED in San Francisco. And we do it in just enough time for you to, like, walk the dog or do the dishes. And you've got a star on the podcast this (laughs) week, no? I do. I do have to say that I'm quite a fan of Rachel Maddow. We were talking about her book Prequel, which was all about when America fought back fascism during World War II. One of the things that I walked away thinking about after I talked with Rachel Maddow was just how optimistic and positive she is about America's ability to get through this latest iteration of like a completely paralyzed house and mm-hmm. the ability to... Like, I expected her to probably be a little cynical, but at the same time, really intellectual about it and also very, you know, measured. But she was just very, very positive. And and I I don't know, that's that's really hopeful for me, I think. Helpful and hopeful. (laughs) Yeah. You know, um, my interview this week, I actually would file under a rubric in my brain, which is like stuff that's actually working. <laughs> you know, we get so oftentimes talk about stuff that's like broken or that doesn't work or that is unfixable, irreparable. And I had on a woman named Emily Galvin Almansa who started this kind of organization that does different form of criminal defense. So like not just like defending you in a court of law, but also providing kind of wraparound services. And I just kind of found it this beautiful thing. They call it collaborative defense. Other people call it holistic defense. It's a, it's just like a totally fascinating model. It's like growing all over the country now. And one of the, uh, one of the key test pilots is in Oakland. So let's give the people what they came for, which is some hope, some solutions. Here's my conversation with host, writer, commentator, podcaster, Rachel Maddow. Rachel, such a pleasure to have you on Forum. Welcome. Oh, Mina, it's so great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. 
<laughs> it's so great too that you are also a Bay Area kid who grew up in the Castro Valley, which is one of the many reasons that you have so many fans in our listening area, Rachel. <laughs> My parents still live in the house that I grew up in, in Castro Valley. I still have lots of ties to the Bay Area. I grew up listening to KQED. I still do. Um, so I'm super excited. Yeah. Oh, well, that really means a lot. Well, listener Roque wrote in before the show, I am a big fan of Rachel. Her show is the only reason why I look forward to Mondays. So <laughs> there you go. You know, I did want to ask you about why you did make that decision to go to Mondays, because there was something interesting you said in an article by The Hollywood reporter, where you mentioned essentially that you were worried that your brain was getting squished into the same shaped box every night by doing the show every night, five mm -hmm. nights a week. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't have any right to complain about anything. <laughs> I have the greatest <laughs> job in the world. I have editorial freedom to cover what I want and not cover what I don't want and to say what I want about it, you know, within the bounds of NBC News standards. I really have the best job in the world and I have for a long time. But something about the way that I work, which I apparently don't have very much control over, I just have this one way of working and I can't change it, um, meant that I was kind of working myself to death. Um, and I found that not only was I having like physical health problems, you know, back problems and stuff, um, I just found that I was thinking shorter thoughts and thinking in shorter sentences and reading shorter material. It had been a long time since I was reading, you know, nonfiction books for pleasure that weren't related to something that I needed to cover immediately on the air. And I was just kind of worried that I was in a sort of vocational training school for my brain that wasn't a job that I wanted it to have. Um, and so I, I actually came to the network and told them that I thought I just wanted to stop doing this kind of work altogether. And I'm very grateful that my bosses here said, you know, let's, let's try instead to reconceive the way you do this work so you can still do some of it, but you do other types of work that that feel more sustainable to you. And that's where we, this is how I landed on the, the very good job that I have now. Yeah, well, so I imagine then working on prequel and the podcast ultra that led to this book was more sustainable for you, was a way to, to think more expansively about what we're going through now as a nation? I think so. Yeah. I, I'm I'm not working any less than I was. My <laughs> girlfriend will tell you that definitively. She thought she was going to get more time with me. My friends who I go fishing with thought I was going to finally get good at fishing. I have, I have no no additional free time. But um, but having different sorts of deadlines, working on, um, you know, an eight part podcast or working on a new book or working on I'm, I'm working on a scripted TV show and I have a couple of movie projects that I'm working on, having all sorts of different types of deadlines that require different types of work and thinking and production from me, different levels of um, uh, co collaboration with, with co-creators and co-writers. That's good for me, it turns out, and it, it gives me a ton of energy. And in terms of, of prequel and, and ultra, the podcast where the research sort of led to this book, it's uh, in keeping, I think people would recognize kind of the way my brain works. If you've watched the show that 
I, I think I rightfully get dinged for starting everything with, you know, first a meteor hit the earth and then the dinosaurs <laughs> died. And you know, like I, I tend to go back farther in history than you need to. But that is the way that I think about things. I, I feel like I need to learn the premises and I need to learn the origin stories of the characters and the circumstances I'm talking about in order to really get it myself. So it's my own learning process, my own need to know that drove me to this story. Well, I'm so glad because it was really helpful to know that America could beat back fascists, you know, like rabid anti-Semites who were launching this like isolationist movement in the U.S. to, to just feel like, OK, we've done this before. Even people who were able to capture the minds of people at some of the highest levels of power during World War II were essentially vanquished. I I'm wondering if you could just describe a little bit about, you know, the the conspirators of that time and what they were trying to achieve. The the thing that I still find shocking, even after spending all this time working on it, the thing that still shocks me about this was how connected, how influential, how important were who were involved with this very radical movement. You had the most famous industrialist in the country, Henry Ford, who was not just personally anti-Semitic, which I think I knew before getting into this, but he was, I think, probably the most prolific anti-Semitic propagandist mm. in the history of the English language. Um, you had Charles Lindbergh, who was the second most famous person in the country after the president himself and a consensus national hero. You had Father Charles Coughlin, who was the most influential media figure we've probably ever had in the United States. We had the America First Committee, which was the largest voluntary political organization of its kind in the lead up to World War II. Just absolutely massive in terms of their influence, their sway, their respectability. Um, and they were tied to some incredibly radical things. Coughlin organized his listeners into armed militia groups, um, some of whom were put on trial for trying to for stockpiling bombs and trying to overthrow the U.S. government by force. Um, Charles Lindbergh argued not only that we shouldn't join World War II, but that if we did, we should fight with Germans because they represented the white race, which was the only race that had um, the right effectively to use aviation, which was the great tool and great technological advance of the day. And that was specifically for white people. And we in Germany should join together in that against the rest of the world, the colored masses. Um, I mean, it was really, um, it was a, it was a bigger movement than we remember. It was more well-connected and it was trying to overthrow the U S government by force. Um, and it's, um, I feel like if, if that could be happening in our country at a time when Germany was steamrolling the Europe um, and, and we weren't just in a time of you know, authoritarians being ascendant the way we are now, but actually fascist dictators were taking over the world by force. If we can face up against a fascist movement buoyed by those sorts of dynamics here, then we can we can face our challenges today. I find it hard. Some people find it a scary parallel. I find it a, a heartening parallel because they were beaten back despite everything they had going for them. Yeah, you find it a heartening parallel, even though I think there were 30 people or so that you write about who were accused of the plot to overthrow the government because of the hard work of, you know, prosecutors and journalists and informants and so on. Um, but that it 
it ultimately ends in a mistrial, but but even exposing the plot, their plot, you know, had it sounds like a lot of value, um, especially yes. for people, yeah, who who are learning about this now through your book. But also, I think it just you can't help but draw the parallels to this attempt to explode expose the plot that the J six committee has been doing as well with regard to the twenty twenty mm-hmm. election, because I think a lot of people are feeling like we're not seeing justice in that necessarily, or maybe it won't end um, in in jail, for example. You know, I mean, it's such an astute point. And doing this work at the same time, doing some of this research at the same time that I was covering the January 6th hearings, totally changed my view of the importance of those hearings. Because I think that there were a lot of observers who looked at what the January 6th committee was turning up, looked at the truths they were finding and documenting and thought, well, so what? They don't have the power to prosecute anybody. And even if they refer people to the Justice Department, doesn't look like the Justice Department's going to do much with it. Why, why, why bother? And what I feel like I learned from the people who fought fascism in the United States in the lead up to World War II is that exposure is everything, that it's not just getting it right for history. So people like me 80 years down the road can write books like this. It's showing the American people what people are trying to do in secret, what the true nature of their ideology is, and what their aims are for the country. And I have an optimistic view of the capacity of the American people to recognize danger, to recognize complexity, to follow deep, dark, nuanced stories and understand their meaning. And it is the, the the sort of apex, I think, of that fight from this time that I'm looking at is not that there was a fight in court or not even that there was an arrest or not even that somebody was, you know, deported back to Germany or whatever all these other endings were. The, the ultimate ending of it is that they were exposed by journalists, by activists, by law enforcement, and the American people voted out the members of Congress who were associated with this plot. And part of the reason we don't think of it as something that was very powerful or very influential or could have potentially worked to overthrow the government is because those members of Congress who were involved in it have been lost to history now. And they've been lost to history because they're losers, because they were voted out by an American people who had this plot exposed to them. And so, yes, the January 6th committee wasn't going to put anybody in the dock and and send them to prison. But exposing it shows the American people what happened and then the American people can act on their own. And I really believe that dynamic is as alive today as it was as it was then. Rachel Maddow. You can hear more of my conversation with her if you just search KQED Forum Maddow in your favorite podcast app. We'll be back with Emily Galvin Almanza. She's the co-founder of Partners for Justice, which is reimagining the public defender system across the country. Don't go anywhere. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. In California, prosecutors are allocated a billion dollars more than public defenders. That leads to staggering caseloads, huge numbers of plea deals, and a basic unfairness in our system. But according to a recent New Yorker article, the organization our first guest co-founded, Partners for Justice, demonstrates that, quote, the most pernicious structural impediments to due process are surmountable. The amount of time people spend in jail, itself a factor in how likely they are to commit another crime, can be reduced, and people can get help whether or not they're ultimately convicted of a crime. We'll explore what's been working this morning with Emily Galvin Almanza, founder and co-executive director of Partners for Justice. Welcome, Emily. Thank you so much for having me. So let's just set up the state of play in public defense for people you who haven't been living this. You got into public defender work here in the Bay Area, right? I did. I was uh, very proudly started out as a public defender in Santa Clara County. And what did you kind of see there? Like, what is a what did you do as a public defender just kind of on the line? Yeah, so most people, when they think of our criminal legal system, they think of, like, law and order episodes from the 1990s where there's, like, a murder every minute in the subway. Um, but actually, about 80% of the cases in our criminal legal system are misdemeanors. Hmm. And that sort of 80-20 ratio is true of most American jurisdictions. I started out as a misdemeanor trial attorney in San Jose, California, and the vast majority of what I saw was not really people doing bad things for no reason. Hmm. What I saw was people who were trying to survive, Hmm. people who had been pushed into completely untenable situations by circumstances beyond their control, people who were doing their best but operating inside a system that, if anything, set them up more to fail than to succeed. I also saw a system that was particularly targeting low-income people and black and brown people. I think most Americans think that our our legal system is sort of equally applied to everyone, but in fact, 80% of people who stand accused in our our criminal legal system are so poor that they get a public defender like me. Hmm. So our system is really directed at a very particular group of people I could go on for longer than your listeners probably have about the history and the why and like our our history as a as a nation formed by slavery that created this this system but the bottom line is I saw a lot of solvable problems I saw a lot of wrongly accused people a lot of people who were accused of something that maybe sort of related to something they did but was way more seriously charged than the reality should allow and a lot a lot a lot of addressable problems that our public systems were failing to address huh. So you then went in your career out to the Bronx, right, where this mode of doing defense had been developed that I think we're now calling holistic defense, right? Um, Talk to me about what you saw in the Bronx that kind of inspired you to to go down this road. Yeah, so I'd always been thinking a lot about the things beyond the courtroom as a defender. Um, I myself had a a youth uh, that involved myself making some really awful choices and getting arrested. Um, so I never walked in with the perspective of like, I'm the lawyer and I'm very different and special is really the perspective <laughs> of like, oh man, this kid has done stuff that, that I've done, except he's 
black in East LA and or in San Jose and, and I was white in Iowa. Um, and so I'd also practiced uh, with the Three Strikes Project at Stanford when the Three Strikes Reform passed in California. And so much of our work in bringing lifers home was about thinking about what happens beyond the courtroom, setting people up with housing and a job opportunity and, you know, substance use or mental health treatment if they wanted it. And, you know, really setting people up to succeed in life as well as thinking about the legal case. So when I went to the Bronx, I was so excited. I was like, oh my God, I get to work as part of a an interdisciplinary team. And when my client says, hey, I know you want to talk about the suppression hearing in my criminal case, but I want to talk about my housing situation mm. and my kids, I could say, we've got you. Yeah. We've got you. I never had to say, oh, I'm so sorry, we can't help with that. I could say, absolutely, let me walk you down the hall to my colleague who specializes in that. And we're gonna we're gonna protect you. Yeah. Um, but coming in, you know, from a traditional public defense background, I, I couldn't help but think, like, it's so sweet that this exists, you know, few well-resourced public defenders. Why can't we have this everywhere? Hmm. I mean, I, I think a question that we sometimes encounter on the show when we are talking about providing more services for people who are struggling is people are just like, well, why should people who've been charged with a crime sort of, quote, like, get something extra or get more from the system than someone who hasn't been? <laughs> yeah, so um, it's a really, it's a question I get all the time. And here's what I have to say. We all want the same things, right? We all want to live in a safe neighborhood where you can walk down the street at any time of night and feel fine walking by yourself. Um, I say as a smallish lady who wants to walk down streets by myself. <laughs> we all want thriving corner stores and greater public health. Um, we want our neighbors to be doing well so that we are all doing better together. Mm. When we acknowledge that so much of what causes people to engage in harm in the community is because of an underlying unmet need that we can meet if we push the right resources towards it. We recognize that we all get safer when we give those of our neighbors who are struggling the support they need to no longer be in that struggle or to alleviate that struggle. And, you know, it's hard because we're so trained in our legal system to, like, react in ways that are about who we're scared of and who we're mad at. And we're taught that, you know, punishment works. And if you punish somebody hard enough, it's deterrent. The problem is the data doesn't bear that out. What the data says is punishing people harshly doesn't stop future crime. But giving people housing or making sure they have access to income or, you know, making sure that kids have something to do with their day or actually fostering strong and healthy relationships. These are all things that robust studies have shown lower crime. So we got to stop doing what we emotionally think we're supposed to do and start paying attention to the data. And this program is really evidence-based and, and arises from that data. What about the cost of a, a program like, you know, you run in Partners for Justice or, or out in the Bronx? I mean, is this something that basically the, the taxpayers end up like picking up the bill for? Um, not so it's it's interesting it actually has the potential to save a lot of money um our initial analysis shows that every dollar that a jurisdiction puts towards what we call collaborative defense mm -hmm. which is sort of advocacy that goes beyond the criminal case and works on all these other issues can actually save taxpayers three to six dollars in terms of reduced incarceration because supporting people means fewer people go to jail and prisons 
governments shouldn't have to pay as much or put as much money towards jailing and imprisoning people. Uh, that's not even counting the downstream savings of greater public health and greater, you know, higher employment levels, greater economic mobility. Purely in reduced incarceration, we can we can save people money. Mm. So talk to me about uh, founding uh, Partners for Justice. Um, you where'd you get started, and you know how's the expansion gone? Yeah, so I was at the Bronx Defenders, and I was thinking, man, I I really want to come up with a way to to get these results, the ability to say yes to our clients, the ability to do more. I want that everywhere, um, and I I'm a good public defender. I know how to do the job, but I didn't know how to like build a company. <laughs> So I went and found my my childhood friend Rebecca Solo, who had gone on you know from our from our childhood together in Iowa. She'd become a very successful management consultant specializing in nonprofits and governments. And so she really had the expertise to do the company building and the you know effectiveness assuring side of this work. <laughs> so we came together. I took her out uh, for I think it was brunch, <laughs> and she two mimosas later she was in. Um, <laughs> Clever strategy. Yeah. <laughs> I, I am. I am strategic. I am a lawyer. Um, no, it's been amazing. So we we had to find a couple of public defenders who would go on this journey with us. We knew that the key role was not another lawyer role. The key role was a non-lawyer service specialist who could learn how to do all these different forms of housing, employment, education, benefit stabilization, all of that, and also could tell the story of what our clients were achieving and doing and our clients' goals and hopes and fears and achievements, tell that story to judges and prosecutors so that our clients would be more likely to be released instead of sent to jail. So we wanted to put this role in two brave pilot public defender agencies who were interested in trying something new. We found those, uh, those, those pilot agencies in Wilmington, Delaware, and Oakland, California. Um, I think I accosted Brendan Woods at a conference where we were co-presenting. <laughs> and I think what I said was like, hey, you seem cool. Do you want to try this? <laughs> <laughs> and that worked. It worked. It worked, yeah. yeah. Um, so what has been the kind of initial um, kind of response in these kind of two places? And, and maybe even, you know, extending, you know, Bronx and, you know, Alameda County and, and Oakland and, and Delaware? So the results have been phenomenal. Um, we are client-led, meaning that we very intentionally don't presuppose what people are going to need. Um, we ask people what they need. And so we were able to do some initial surveys in these jurisdictions that showed that 75 to 90 percent of public defender clients had a need that we could meet if the defender was resourced to do so. Mm. Um, and on average, this is the other thing that's so important, nobody has just one need. Most jurisdictions offer services, kind of one service at a time. You go to one office to get the housing service and another office to get the employment service and another office to get the you know, mental health support. Nobody has to go to just one place. On average, our clients have two to seven needs apiece. So when you create a one-stop shop inside their public defender, which, by the way, is a place they're going anyway. You're not asking them to go to a new provider mm -hmm. or go to a new agency that's open from 2 to 3.30 yeah. on Thursdays. Yeah, they're going to be there anyway. So we're offering, you know, as, as seamless access as possible to people at a place they have to go anyway. And it's interdisciplinary, so they don't, if they don't have to go themselves to multiple providers. They've got someone on our team, an advocate, helping create a feeling of a one-stop shop for them inside their public defender. And the results are staggering. We actually just 
looked at the last year of what we would call mitigation work in Delaware. That's that's when an advocate has done some services with a person and then written up that person's story, given some context, and also you know written about the services that they've had and what they've been working on, and presented that information in writing to a judge or a prosecutor. This is a mixture of misdemeanor and felony cases, and in the last year, 87% of those cases, no prison, no jail, 71% found a path to dismissal. That was my conversation with Emily Galvin Almanza. If you want to go deeper, just go wherever you get podcasts, search KQED Forum and Partners for Justice. And that's all for Forum in Focus, the week's most compelling conversations in under 30 minutes. Thanks for listening. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.